Hello and welcome to Where Do We Begin? My name is Carly McCulloch and I'm a track cyclist. You know, one of those crazy people who ride around in a lycra skin suit on a bike that you can't stop pedaling with no brakes. Thanks for that, Carly. My name is Harper and my co-host on this tremendous day goes by the name of Lockie. How are you, Lockie? Oh, the weather's not great outside, but I tell you what is great. The episode we just recorded, it was an absolute belter. Another part of our 2021 Olympic series, and I'm just super pumped for the listeners to uh, to hear it. Can you tell us a little bit about our guest today, Harpsy Boy? Oh, it's going to be absolutely awesome. Carly McCulloch is just a legend of cycling and sport in general in Australia. Won a medal in the 2012 Olympics, four world championships, which is absolutely phenomenal and this chat it just took all kinds of twists and turns i thought it kind of calmed a bit and then just another twist just like that it was nuts and if you find anything particularly nuts in this chat in this podcast remember to join the conversation be a part of the community over here at where do we begin hashtag wdwb olympics on twitter or wherever you want really hashtag wdwb olympics locky i reckon we just get into it mate i think we've said enough Let's dive in. Okay, guys, continuing on in the fine tradition of having some cracking cyclists here on the show. Where do we begin? Might actually be a bit weird for our listeners who have been here from the start, considering we intended it to be an Aussie Rules podcast, but we've got another (laughs) cyclist. It's really great having this variety, and she's not just any old cyclist. She is a four-time world champion, a bronze medalist from the 2012 Olympics. No mean feat either of those things, of course. Incredible athlete she is. It's Carly McCulloch. Welcome, Carly. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And that was a great pronunciation of the last name. I, I, I wouldn't have been able to go with that half, yeah. so I'm very, very impressed. I'm very can tell impressed. you did, can tell you did you English language get? at I school. I thought that was the only way people ever did it. <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of different things. Actually, in Japan, I actually get um, Makaraku, which I'm not really sure how they get that, but that's my name over there, Kali Makaraku. So, yeah, I get – I get. It's, it's actually more my first name because the spelling's so strange, K-A-A-R-L-E. That I get Carl or Charles sometimes. I'm just like, what? How, how do you get that? <laughs> well, don't worry. In Japan, I'm sure they'll be uh, getting your name right when you win gold in a couple of weeks or months' time. And <laughs> fingers fingers crossed. I love that. And you must just it must just be so exciting that now after the wait, you know, a, a lot longer wait than what you probably expected. It, but it's finally here. It's only a couple of weeks away now. Yeah, 50 days today actually, as we record this. So that's pretty exciting. There's 64 days until I compete, I believe, but. 50 days until we leave, 50 days until the opening ceremony. So it's starting to feel a little bit more real. We are about to start our final staging staging camp in Brisbane before we head off to Tokyo. So all the team will finally be one team again. And, uh, yeah, things are ramping up, so I'm very excited. Yeah, now that is really exciting. Uh, I guess uh, 50 days away, raise the bat in uh, cricket terms. So that's su- yep. super pumped for that. And uh, But just a little bit for our listeners. I know our listeners are absolutely experts on cycling, but some of them aren't. So can you explain a little bit about your um, sport for the novices out there, such as myself, to be honest? Yeah, sure. So I participate in uh, track cycling and I'm a sprinter. So there's two disciplines on the track. There's endurance, so the ones who ride lots and lots of laps, and then there's sprint, which is me, and I ride not many laps. <laughs> I like to say that I'm like the Usain Bolt of the cycling world. So, you know, when I went to London, I I uh, only rode something like, um, I think it was about a minute and two seconds worth of effort over the, the day that I rode. So short and sharp, get in there, get out. So um, the events that I'm going to be competing in in Tokyo are the Kieran and the Sprint. And so the, the Sprint is probably the more commonly known one. That's like the cat and mouse race where all the riders qualify, they do a flying 200 and then you get seated and the fastest rider rides against the slowest rider and so on until you have the last two left and it's a battle for, for the gold medal with that one. And then I'm also going to be participating in the Kirin, which is actually a Japanese race and that race is a motor-paced race. So six riders will line up on the track, you'll get given a position, a derny or a motorbike will come past and they'll pick us all up. We have to line up in, a, in the positions that we drew. And then we get pace from 30 k's an hour up to 50 k's an hour over three laps. The motorbike then exits the track and then it's pandemonium. It's three laps just basically, you know, fighting it out to cross that line uh, <laughs> first, hopefully. So they're the two events I'll be competing in in Tokyo. And, yeah, we're super excited about that. 
And for these sprint cycling events, the the strength and speed and power is just nuts. Like uh, I saw something that uh, you can generate over 1,500 watts of power. I've got no idea what that's equivalent to, but it's a bloody big number. So it's just insane. Yeah, it is insane. We um, we can put out a lot of power. About 1,500 is my PB. The boys are putting around, out around 2,400 watts, so almost 1,000 watts wow. more than what the girls can. Um, I actually heard a, um, a statistic. Uh, when we do a start, so there is an event where you start in a gate and you're locked in that gate. And in the first pedal stroke off out of that gate, the, the men can actually put more torque through the crank than that of a V8 uh, supercar engine. So it's a lot of power, a lot of speed, and we do a lot of training in the gym to try and get strong. And basically the, how, how we go fast is you have to be strong first, then you have to be powerful, and once you're powerful, you can be fast. So, yeah, we spend a lot of hours lifting a lot of weight. Wow, that, that is absolutely phenomenal. And I guess hearing hearing the uh, the watts that you everybody produces does that mean in a couple of years when we've run out of our uh, fossil fuels and I guess with all the issues with climate change we'll have us uh, former Olympic cyclists they'll be running the uh, the energy in the system they'll just be on their on the uh, exercise bikes and uh, <laughs> keeping the generators going. I'll, leave, I'll probably leave that one to the enduros. They can't put out as many watts, but they can do it for a lot longer. Otherwise, you'll only have power for about five seconds and that won't be any good to anyone. <laughs> a lot can get done in five seconds though. And, True. and you touched a bit on before how you have to lift a lot of weights. What is sort of the training regime for a sprinter in the cycling um, events? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we have to be strong before we can be powerful and before we can be fast, we have to be powerful. So strength underpins a lot of our off-season and we'll spend um, between three to four sessions of around about three hours in the gym a week in the off-season. And uh, traditionally, that looks like a lot of, of your traditional lifts to begin with, squat, deadlift. Uh, my PBs in those are 150 for squat, uh, 140 for deadlift. And then as we move on through the season, we get a little bit more specific. We go to single leg exercises. So I can single leg squat 110 kilos. I can single leg deadlift around about the same. And then, um, yeah, we go we go more specific to actually on bike strength. So this probably won't make a lot of sense to a lot of people, but um, we, we, we push. Um, so the truck cycling is, has a fixed gear. And so you pick a, a chain ring and a cog and that gives you um, – how many turns per crank gives you, you know, the distance, right, that you can pedal. So the bigger the, the gear, the the more distance you're travelling per each pedal stroke. So we're pushing, you know, gears now that are up around 170 inches, which is pretty massive considering that we race some gears around about 110. So um, if you think about that, that difference, it's almost 60 centimetres. It's a lot more um, time under tension that you've got to push those, those gears. So um, we do we do the, the traditional lifting, the more specific lifting, and then the on-bike specific strength um, throughout the year before we can actually start going fast on the bike. Yeah, okay. That's really interesting, I guess, hearing all the different sort of leg weights and stuff that you have to do, which is obviously obviously so important um, in regards to the sport. But I'm interested in the sort of volume that you actually train on the bike because I don't, I'm don't. i not 100% on the quote. Uh, my memory is not as sharp as all Harper's over there. But there's something like, I think like Usain Bolt, like his toughest running session would him be doing like 300-meter sprints in like two hours. So mm-hmm. I'm, I know it's slightly different because it's on the bike, but as a sprinter on the bike, like what is the actual volume of training that you do on the bike? Is it a lot? Do you do much endurance-based stuff or is a lot of it sort of that short, sharp, more, I guess, race intensity? We have a we have a quote with sprinting that road makes you slow. So that's you know the the hours that the endurance teams will be going. You know that's Tour de France spec where they're spending seven eight hours on the bike. We just don't do that anymore. There was a little bit of that when I first started riding where we did maybe one to two hour roads at a you know higher intensity. But um, we know that road riding actually makes us slow. We're trying to teach our muscles to switch on fast and go fast. So um, we our, the hardest track session that we actually do we only ride a total of about probably 300 metres, so almost very similar to Usain Bolt. And we we do um, only quarter lap efforts, so that's only 60 metres. And those 60 metres are the the high torque um, efforts that I was talking about with the, you know, the high power and the V8 supercar engine kind of torque going through the bike. So that's actually the, the session that burns the most calories. It's the session that fatigues us the most. It's the session that is the hardest on the body. And it's a really hard for a lot of people to get their head around that because we literally do 60 metres of effort and we sit down for 20 minutes recovering and then we get up and do it again. And so, yeah, in terms of volume, like that's actually our hardest session and uh, it is the most taxing and the most difficult. So, yeah, alongside the same bowl, it's really quite similar. Yeah, that's 
I was going to say, because obviously it'd all be because you want to train those fast twitch muscles. Is it quite hard though to sort of get, get into that mindset of obviously pushing so hard over mm-hmm. 60 meters that you do need that 20 minute rest? Like it would be really hard because I can only imagine how hard you'd actually have to push in those sessions to get the benefits out of it. It must be really mentally draining. Yeah, it can be. And I think um, the mindset that I had to start to learn to take into it is to like pretend that I did have 150 kilos on my back. Because when you've got that, you know, that fight or flight response going, it's the only way that you can get yourself to push to that level. And I probably only, it probably took me five years into my career until I really truly understood um, how much it actually hurt because it took me that long to teach my body to actually go that hard. And, you know, I remember Anamir's telling me, you know, you, you don't know what fatigue means just yet really early on in my career. And then I had a couple of sessions, yeah, I, I, as I said, five years on, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I know what she means now. Like we can go so deep that we do need that 20 minutes to recover from a 60-minute <laughs> effort. Mm, yeah, well, like I said before, it's phenomenal. But I want to throw it back just before it's too late, throw it back to kind of where it all began, junior running career. You were a bit of a um, – like incredible junior runner really making uh, Australian championships, all kinds of things, just amazing. But uh, there's a really good article that you wrote on athletesvoice.com.au, I think the website is, which I really recommend people should go check out if they can. And you spoke about the kind of um, the stigma and shame, I guess, of um, not having the perfect body, uh, especially in the junior running environment and especially being a girl. So uh, talk us through what that was like growing up trying to crack into that with uh, those kind of challenges? Yeah, so um, as a 12-year-old, my father took me to watch the Sydney Olympics and, you know, obviously that was a fantastic experience and I knew straight away that I wanted to be a part of the Olympics in some way, shape or form, hopefully as an athlete. And (laughs) what I was good at was was running at the time. And so uh, I don't know why, but I was pretty stubborn and I thought that I would be a middle-distance runner. I, I was good at it, but I definitely didn't have, the body shape for it. And as I got a little bit older, sort of around that 15, 16 years old, and I was lining up on the start line and I was more short, more stocky, a bit heavier, in no way, shape or form unfit or anything like that. But my competitors were taller and leaner and, and you know, their stride lengths were longer and I just wasn't in the right sport. And so once I found cycling and I, I, I could see the other girls around me were built more like me, I became more comfortable in my own skin. And I guess what I try to encourage younger girls even if they're not in cycling is to make sure that they do try lots of different sports because you don't know what your body is actually you know capable of or suited for um you know a lot of young girls play netball um that's not necessarily you know the best sport for their body so if they could go and try something like cycling or rowing or gymnastics or whatever it might be you might surprise yourself uh, because I certainly surprised myself I, I did not think that I would um be a sprinter even though I had that shorter, stockier nature because I was quite good at the, you know, the longer distance stuff. Um, but, yeah, I surprised myself and I really learned to appreciate my body a little bit more once I had found something that it was suited for. And the way you got into cycling and that Olympic thing you touched on before, it really, I've heard about it, it really sounds like something out of a Hollywood movie, a Hollywood <laughs> drama movie. Uh, yeah. So for our listeners, most of them who I presume wouldn't know about, uh, can you talk us through that? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I was pretty stubborn and I believed that I was going to go to the Olympics and be just like Kathy Freeman. And, you know, around that 16, 17 years old, I realized that that probably wasn't going to be realistic, even though I had had success. You know, I had achieved three national titles with my with my school team in all schools knockout. I've been to nationals, you know, I was sort of that top 15 maybe in the country, but I never was going to be knocking on the door of, you know, wearing that green and gold um, outfit. And that's that was my ultimate dream. And my stepfather's family actually owned a bike shop and they had been telling me for years, you should try cycling, you should try cycling. And I just thought, I am not trying cycling. <laughs> I'm going to be a runner. And eventually one day he did, um, you know, convince me and he was giving me all this advice as we we're heading over to the track, you know, truck cycling. As I mentioned before, it's fixed gear. It has no brakes so you, and you can't stop pedaling it. So first of all, as a 17-year-old, I was like, this is crazy. Who would even do that? And then second of all, the Lycra skin suit um, did not appeal to me at all. I couldn't believe that, you know, you don't wear underwear underneath those. And I was just, it was outrageous. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And um, I got on the bike and I rode a few laps and, um, you know, they sort of forced me to participate in the training that day. And I actually beat everybody there. And 
the coach at the time um, came up to me after one particular effort and basically said the words that changed my life forever. He said, if you had it done at that same time on a track 100 metres longer, you would be the Olympic champion like enemies. And, you know, that was it from that moment on. I was a cyclist. I didn't quite tell my stepfather that I was that convinced in that moment. But, yeah, within two, two weeks I had told my running coach, you know, I'm done, I'm ready for something different in my life. And um, eight months later, I believe it was, I, I made my first Australian team and won a bronze medal at the Junior World Championships in 2006. So, yeah, I just found something that I was good at and I, I really thrived straight away. That is crazy. That that sounds like love at first sight. <laughs> yeah, pretty much it was. I would definitely <laughs> say that. <laughs> now, not if, but when this Hollywood smash hit gets made of the Carly McCulloch story, who's playing in the movie? Why does it have to be Hollywood, mate? We're, we're all happy for indie films good here. We don't, ne- good point. Yeah. we don't need a big, big box office here. I think a, not, a young indie director might come in and make the Carly movie and I reckon it'll be amazing, Harp. So don't just pigeonhole it yet. Don't just pigeonhole it. But it's a great question. Who plays Colin McCulloch? Oh, geez. Um, oh, gosh, I don't know. Maybe someone like Scarlett Johansson. She's gorgeous. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe someone like that. <laughs> Jeez, what, what about an Aussie actress or not? You, you want the you want the one of the top ones? <laughs> Aussie actress. Um, well, who I couldn't go past. Um, oh gosh, her name's um, escaped me. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street. What's her name? Ma- Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie. Yeah, maybe Margot Robbie. <laughs> but yeah, um, so you said that you sort of like tried a bunch of different sports. I guess through mm-hmm. growing up, you touched on that earlier, which half gives us an inspiration, mate. Maybe if we try enough sports, we'll finally <laughs> be half decent at one. <laughs> I, th- I think we'll be searching for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But what, what other sports did I guess you play, um, which I sort of guess helped you translate into um, your cycling form that you like? Yeah. Yeah. So um, when I was 14, 12 or 13, my, um, we moved from like sort of country New South Wales around the Southern Highlands into the city. And that's sort of where my running career sort of took off. And I wasn't the best runner in my squad. And so I what I wanted to do though was to to do lots of different things just to see you know if there was anything else that I could be good at. Um, I was pretty good at netball, um, and I did everything at school. I did uh, swimming, even though I was a hopeless swimmer, I still did it. Um, soccer, uh, hockey, uh, just basically <laughs> volleyball. I mean, I did volleyball. Like I'm so short, I don't even know how they picked me on that team. Um, but I just loved playing sport. And so I think, um, oh, touch football, that was my favorite with, with my, with my running girlfriends at school, we were so good at, at touch football. Um, so I just wanted to participate in everything. I think I had like 40 missed days of school in my final year because I was just like doing everything that I could, (laughs) you know, it's a dream to go to miss a day of school and go and play sport instead. So, uh, that was probably my biggest motivation for playing those other sports, but also I just enjoyed being active and being out there and, I learned pretty quickly. I knew I wasn't going to be a team sport person. Um, I just couldn't cope with losing if it was a teammate's fault. <laughs> so I knew straight away I was definitely going to be more individual focused. And, yeah, so when cycling came along, I was, yeah, all for uh, – look, I don't want to say individual glory because to get a medal at this high level that I participate in is a massive team effort, but there's just something about being completely responsible for your own destiny that I really loved. And when I go out and I ride that bike, I had that team support, but it's all up to me in that moment. And <laughs> yeah, that's definitely what I appreciate about what I do. That's interesting. I think it's quite a tough thing to sort of like be part of like an individual compared to team sport. Cause I know for me, I couldn't deal with the pressure of like it all mm. being up to me. I'm very much, I'd rather be a cog in the, in the <laughs> thing. Like it'd be, I just couldn't deal with like, it's all on me. Like it must be quite hard. Oh, I'd struggle with that. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I still struggle with that. In fact, that's probably the biggest thing that I have to deal with constantly with my sports psychologist is the pressure that I feel constantly to perform. But there's something rewarding about being able to take control of those psychological aspects of yourself and understand yourself and be able to go, this is something about me that I struggle with and that I want to try to make better. And so 
you know, I get asked often by people, you know, do you still get nervous? And how, how do you deal with nerves? And I say to them always, it doesn't change. Like you always get nervous. Like I get as nervous, you know, going to play a game of ping pong against my teammates <laughs> as what I do lining up for an Olympic final because I just want to do good. And you've got to learn how to control that. So um, it doesn't change. You just get better at understanding yourself and, and learning the ways to, to, to manage and handle the anxiety. Now, that competitive nature is, yeah, something that just runs through all sports people and really takes them to the top. And uh, Lockie and I are both pretty competitive guys, but we're not too good at anything, really. If, if I had a sport where there were 100 people aside, I'd play that just to hide how shit I am. But uh, moving on, uh, the, the 2012 Olympics uh, kind of big breakthrough on the world kind of global stage with everyone watching in Australia, bronze medal with Anna Mears. At the time, yeah, what are you, 24, uh, something mm-hmm. like that? Uh, it's yeah. got to feel pretty good at the time, eh? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting one because um, Anna had been three times world champion in the lead into that event. And so my expectation was that we were going to win. And there's actually a couple of photos of me as we crossed the finish line for bronze. And I look absolutely devastated and so unhappy and for the even the medal presentation, I look like, you know, the crankiest person that you could ever see, you know, who stood on an Olympic podium. And it wasn't until um, pretty soon after, actually, I went to do some media and I walked into the studio of the broadcaster from Australia and I got a standing ovation and I was just like, why are you applauding me? I got third, like, I'm not the gold medalist. And then we did the parades when we got home and, you know, all of the things that go with being an Olympic medalist. And I sort of started to realise to myself that what I had achieved was actually pretty damn incredible and it's something that I'm super proud of even to this day. No, I didn't get the colour that I wanted, but I maximised my potential on that that day and I gave everything that I possibly could and we, we won that bronze medal. You know, we didn't lose the gold, we won the bronze. And so... It's taken a long time for me to realise that most people go to the Olympics and lose, right? Because nobody, you know, nobody really remembers second and third or, you know, sixth. But it is important. It just getting there is important. The whole, the whole, you know, Olympic spirit is about participation. And we put so much as athletes on winning that when we don't win, we feel devastated. But it's actually it's actually not about winning. It's about what you have to do to win. And so as I've gotten a bit older, I've realized that it's all the things that go into getting a performance that are the most important. And if it's gold medal, fantastic. And if it's bronze, fantastic. It is six. That might've been your potential. And that's what we have to celebrate. It's not just about the winners. It's also about maximizing your potential and and how good can you be? Yeah, wow. I think that's just a phenomenal sort of attitude to have. And you can just hear as you spoke about that, I just guess the maturing from like, when was that? It was like eight or so, nine years ago now. Mm. And I guess how you can look back at the at the time and the different thing. And it's like, it is so true. I think most people are happy coming third in their uh, year six swimming carnival <laughs> in, the, in the butterfly or freestyle or something like that. I mean, coming, coming third or getting a bronze medal at a, the Olympic Games is an absolutely phenomenal effort. And I think it's really good now that you can look back on that as more of a positive thing. And I think that'll just hold you in good stead hopefully in the upcoming games when you do win gold that's we've called it early here we've called it early we won't ask you to comment on that but but I guess going from those Olympic games I think you had a pretty tough sort of um couple years afterwards I think a quote that I loved because I'm a massive Harry Potter fan is that you're living in (laughs) Harry Potter's cupboard cupboard bedroom you know I think you lost your scholarship at um cycling Australia you have to pretty much fund yourself fund your physio fund your nutrition and to do that you had to make sacrifices in terms of where you lived and got the cheapest Mm -hmm. apartment in Sydney that must have been so difficult to uh sort of do and maintain uh well trying to maintain your professional cycling career yeah so what what I what I had realised at the time, if I wanted to make a comeback, um, so I had an injury after London and I also decided to change coaches, which didn't really go down so well politically for me. And so I was on the outside of the team all of a sudden and I got a phone call one Monday morning while I was in the gym saying that I was no longer going to be on scholarship and that was pretty gut-wrenching because, um, you know, I, I sort of woke up the next day and realised I was 26 years old, I didn't have any other qualifications, Um you know, nobody really 
remembered the fact that I'd won a bronze medal. Like that's not going to count out in the real world. So um, I made a couple of packs with myself in in that moment. The first was that um, I was going to continue with my studies to to finish my degree because I had sort of put my degree aside to pursue my cycling, and I realised that I was had become too single focus, single minded, and, and single focused, and I don't think that that was very healthy. And then the second thing I decided was that I was going to give everything. So I decided not to work. I used all the savings that I had made from my first four or five years has been really successful in cycling and put it all into, you know, finding the best nutritionist, developing a team to put around me so that I could try and get myself back on onto the team and have a good red hot crack at, at Rio. And um, I didn't quite get the outcome that I wanted with Rio, but I definitely learned a lot about myself. I improved myself as a person, both on and off the bike. I'm almost finished my degree now, finally. Um, so I don't feel as nervous about, you know, the prospect of retirement and um, not knowing what I want to do. And, um, you know, I, I learned the value of um, finding as good people and surrounding yourself with good people and making sure that, you know, you've got that, that single-minded focus with your cycling also has a bit of balance as well. Yeah, and to bounce back from the kind of, feels like from uh, how you've spoken about and uh, how you've written about it in other, uh, on that Athlete's Voice article, actually, it's, mm-hmm. uh, choose the word again, it's phenomenal, uh, the whole bounce okay. back with that. And uh, the, the mental health aspect of it, uh, I, I think you were on antidepressants at the time and uh, mm-hmm. to, yeah, bounce back from that, again, amazing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so that, I mean, I, I think I had a little bit of a... I wouldn't, a quarter life crisis is probably what you would call it. Um, you know, up and again, talking about the single focus, you know, I hadn't really even had a boyfriend up until that point. And I found myself in a pretty unhealthy relationship and the breakdown of that relationship combined with, you know, losing my scholarship and then, you know, sort of my world imploding um, really hit me really quite hard. I didn't recognize myself for a long time there. I wasn't my usual upbeat self. I had, I had some purpose, but I was angry about things. I, I didn't have any sort of balance in my life. And um, I did go and seek some help. And I used antidepressants for a really short amount of time. But what I realized at the end of the day was that I still had to work on myself, but like the medication wouldn't just make me feel better. And so I spent a lot of time with my sports psychologist at the time, not even talking about sports psychology. We were just talking about me as a human being and me as a person and what were the things that I wanted to achieve uh, or get the best out of myself as a person first. And, you know, ironically what I came to realise is that sports psychology is actually little about sport and performing. It's more about self-awareness and self-understanding because if you don't have that self-awareness and that self-understanding, you can't actually improve in your sporting endeavors. So you, you might be aware that you get nervous, but if you don't understand why you get nervous, I I get nervous because I'm, I'm a perfectionist and I, and I give everything and I, um, you know, I have a bit of a control freak (laughs) sort of mentality. And so the fact that I can admit that and I can say that were the first steps to me being able to go, okay, well, how can I, how can I use this to my advantage and how can I actually step back from this and, find a different way to, to operate or to you know, be okay with that aspect of myself and then, and then move forward from there. So I think that period of time, as much as it was extremely difficult and hard, I'm the person I am today because of that. And I think it's held me in really good place over the last year in particular, which has been almost as tough, unfortunately, as that, those couple of years in the leading to Rio. Yeah. Wow. That is just simply, you know, it's a, pretty crazy sort of how everything sort of seems seem to happen at once and obviously going through a really difficult time and, and it's interesting how you t- speak about having a sports psychologist is that sort of like just a normal part of the team has that been e- even back then because I know like mental health is such a prevalent thing sort of nowadays especially in the last couple of years but even obviously back in 2013 it was still a really important aspect of sport yeah so it's, it's definitely grown with more, like it's gotten some momentum over the years. Um, I've always been a huge advocate for it. I've always like been really curious about how my mind works and why, you know, very early on in my career, I'd have these super performances and I'd have some really bad performances. And I wanted to know, like, I knew it wasn't me physically. It was, you know, I got over, over aroused for one event or, you know, just didn't, you know, have myself together in another event. And then some, I was like really spot on. So 
wanting to understand was something that I was have always been passionate about. And as a cycling team, we have access now regularly to a sports psychologist as well as external providers in case, you know, you don't want to talk to that one particular person because I think you do have to be able to make a bond with that person that you're talking to because if you're not prepared to be vulnerable and, as I said before, you know, like really look at yourself critically and understand, you know, how I work and how I operate, I don't think you can really use sports psychology to your best advantage so it's definitely a service that's now more readily available to elite athletes but there's still maybe a little bit of a stigma around using it and you know that it's a weakness to have to maybe go and use a sports psychologist so I'm trying to change that with the younger people coming through that it's actually a positive thing and that you the, the best thing you can do is to learn about yourself and to understand yourself better yeah definitely I think hopefully the stigma sort of is slowly sort of um, decreasing a bit. I think mental health is definitely becoming more prevalent. You know, I guess even speaking to people that like whether they teach at school or like students and stuff, it definitely seems like they're learning more about mental health than certainly I did when I was at school, which will obviously help in that process. And I think what you would when you were speaking, it sort of just reminded me of a quote, something along the lines of like, you know, in sport you have way more bad days than you have good in, in reality. I mean, you have about on a racing team, you might have like one good day to every, I don't know how many bad, but it's like, it really is important to have a, that strong mindset that you touched on. Yeah, I definitely agree with that quote. And, you know, I have, you know, those four world championships and an Olympic bronze medal, but I've yeah. lost more races in my career than I've won. <laughs> They're the highlights, you know, there's been some shockers and some races that I've walked away going, oh my gosh, what am I doing this for? <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely a good quote, that one. Uh, and you're starting to become a teacher yourself, aren't you? PA teacher? Yeah, that's correct. So I've got two placements left to go, which I'll finish um, late this year and early next year. And then I'll finally, after 10 years, <laughs> have a bachelor's degree. <laughs> I was going to say slow and steady wins the race, but not, not in cycling sprinting. <laughs> no, definitely not in sprinting. <laughs> yeah. And so kind of on the bounce back from this time of struggle i guess uh in between uh the two olympics london and rio there, mm-hmm. there was oceania championships that you won was it with anna mears or steph morton uh but that, that would have been pretty huge yeah i think that that one would have been with steph i rode with steph and anna like on and off in that period of time because we we're trying to figure out what was the best combination for the team um Probably the most standout one from that period of time actually was the World Championships in 2015 where Anna and I won bronze. And that was sort of my first race back where I was like, okay, I'm back now. I'm on the scene now. So that was um, an emotional moment, especially to do it with Anna. We had switched positions as well from London. So I was the starter now rather than the second wheel rider. And um, that put me on course to, to set myself up to be eligible for selection for Rio. Um, so that was a pretty significant moment and a moment that I thought, oh, okay, all of that sacrifice was worth it. Yeah, but then I, it must have sort of been really disappointing like in terms of like 2016 Rio, uh, <laughs> you were asked to go to the um, the Olympics but as a reserve and just I guess it's a bit of deja vu now training for this Olympics. Like, <laughs> you, would have been, you were training as hard but you knew that like the only way you'd get an opportunity w- was through an injury. Mm. Yeah, that was difficult because obviously, like it's a it's a, it's a double edged sword. Like I I didn't want my teammates to you know miss out, but at the same time, I wanted the opportunity for myself. So, um, you know, I had hope right up until twenty four hours before, which is when you know you could substitute someone in, um, and you know I had to go and sit in this team meeting where we were told, you know, everyone has a chance to win gold. And I was like, yeah, everyone except for me because I can't race. <laughs> so I was pretty I was pretty upset. The next day, the morning of the racing, um, you know, I went to the food hall on my own and I was pretty upset. And Anna actually came and sat with me. And it, it wasn't Anna's fault at all, but I was so mad at her that I almost <laughs> bent, bent my fork. I was like, you get to race and I don't. So, you know, Anna and I have had a lot of good discussions since Rio. She was going through a really difficult period of time during that 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 time as well. And, um, you know, in reflection, uh, only as early as a few months ago, we sat down and we had a really big heart-to-heart and we sort of gave our own versions of, you know, the situation that we were in. And it was really cathartic, actually, because it was a really challenging time. She felt for me, I felt for her. We both wanted the same thing, but only one of us could get it. And so it was a really interesting dynamic where really 
respect and like Anna as a human being, but I really wanted to beat her. (laughs) I really wanted to be in her position. So, you know, there was a lot of jealousy, a lot of ego involved that I had to really, you know, calm the farm a little bit and um, be happy for Australia and for for, for the country that, you know, at the end of the day, the best two girls did get to go out there and ride in Rio. They satisfied the selection criteria better than I did. I had really good form in Rio. I think I could have been comp- as competitive as them, but they say the hardest thing about the Olympics is actually qualifying. And in that cycle for me, that was 100% the truth. Now, that heart-to-heart uh, with Anna is really interesting for me. The uh, kind of whole, the few years of this build-up of jealousy and bitterness, and did that just completely fix it are you on good terms with Anna now yeah I think um the thing with Anna and I is we're really similar people um and so that's why we worked really really well as a team and that's why we were so successful but it's also why when we were pinned against each other it became not a great situation because we were so similar so to be able to sit down with her and again have a conversation and be vulnerable and be honest and admit to your own shortcomings was really, as I said, cathartic and something that I appreciate because some of my best memories in my career are with her and I feel glad now that I'm able to, you know, say that with a lot of joy and passion because, you know, I'm a a three-time sport champion with her, an Olympic bronze medalist and something that I'll cherish for the rest of my life. And the how this interaction or conversation with Anna came about is really interesting was it just kind of happened or was did you plan like let's sit down let's talk about this and kind of sort out all our uh, feelings it was a little bit spontaneous so I had reached out to Anna a couple of years prior so as I mentioned it was only a few months ago we had that conversation so um, let's say started end of 2020 and I had reached out to her probably around 2018 and um, she had been two years into retirement and part of our conversation was actually talking about what retirement is like and um, my boyfriend actually has just um, retired as from Olympic diving and he was going through a really hard time as well I didn't really understand what was going on so to be able to talk to her and to understand from her perspective why she wasn't ready to 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 chat to me when I reached out a couple of years previous was um, also good to understand and to maybe prepare myself a little bit as well for what it could be like for me post um, my athletic career. Um, but it was just a spontaneous moment. You know, she had her daughter, Evelyn, just, you know, walking around in, in the backyard and there was a lot of tears shed and it was unexpected from my end. I thought it was just a catch up for coffee, um, but it was a, a, a catch up for us to sort of put everything out there and to, to really just say to each other, hey, I appreciate you and she appreciates me. So it was really nice. Oh, that's that's pretty amazing and pretty awesome. And it's great that you guys are back on good terms. And Harpsy Boy uh, mentioned earlier, and I guess on another positive note, I guess like we said before, you have more bad days than good days. We'll get back to the positives. Uh, 29, <laughs> 2019 World Championships, I believe you won that one. And you also got it silver in 2020. So I guess heading into the uh, upcoming Olympics, you've got pretty awesome form behind you. Yeah, so 2019 was amazing. Stephanie, who was then my teammate for the Tokyo cycle, we were just on a roll, you know. We were just kicking goals. Every time we got down the track, we rode faster and faster, and I just really believed that we were going to win. Like there was no doubt in my mind that Tokyo was going to end in a in a gold medal. And so 2019 was amazing. I also got a silver medal in the Kieran and a bronze medal in the 500 time trial there, my most successful world championships, actually 10 years on from my first ever world championships on the same track. So it was just like deja vu moment. It was meant to be. <laughs> um, and then unfortunately at the end of 2019, I hurt my back and I went into the world championships in Berlin in 2020, just before the Olympics. So it was our sort of final Olympic selection race with a little bit of that Rio nervousness in me thinking, oh my gosh, the hardest thing about the Olympics is just getting selected. (laughs) I hope I can pull through. And I was on track um, to ride not a particularly great time because I had been impeded by my back, but for whatever reason, I found something extra and we both managed to pull out a silver medal performance there, which was fantastic and sort of solidified my spot on the team. Um, and so that was fantastic. We just had such good momentum heading into Tokyo, or what was to be Tokyo. Yeah, yeah I guess. What do you What do you think of that delay? Because I guess from your perspective, there's both good and bad things. Because obviously, uh, your partner Steph is now retired. Did you ever consider mm-hmm. retiring in the lead up to the Olympics? Mm, the The very short answer to that is no, um, because 
I because of missing out on Rio, I guess there's probably more within me to want to continue on to Tokyo. The thing that has probably weighed on my mind the most has been that my back injury has been extremely tedious and the rehab for that has been really hard. I still have some issues with my back. I can't do some of the same things that I had been able to do. And so there's been days, even as early actually, if I'm truthful, as early as yesterday where I was sitting in the pits and training thinking, oh, my God, like can I still do this? Like am I still good enough? So it's been a really difficult process. Um, obviously, Steph retiring at the end of last year totally changed my event focus. So I went from being, you know, at least a guaranteed medal to going into the Kieran event, which is basically, I wouldn't say it's a lucky dip, but, you know, anything can happen in the Kieran. Um, we saw the defending world champion in Rio get last in the final and she you know, she should have definitely won that. So it's the sort of event that anyone could win. I'd almost put it out there to say that, you know, it could be a Stephen Bradbury-esque like race. <laughs> you know, people could crash in front of you and someone you don't expect to win could win. And so it's just one of those races that you just don't know, which gives me a little bit of hope as well because my physical form is coming in really late and it's nerve-wracking because, um, you know, normally this close, I can sort of see I'm on an upward trend and I'm definitely on an upward trend, but because of my back injury, it's not a normal preparation for me and I have to be really patient and patience is not my forte, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not many of our fortes around here in this Zoom call, I don't think. But um, the back injury, you, you did that mm -hmm. in a crash, was it? No, it wasn't a crash. It was actually in the gym. I um, oh. It was... It was the week after so I had a had the Oceania Championships late 2019 and it was about uh, October and I had an amazing event there. I was on form. Like I just strength to strength to strength. I had, I, as I said, I had no doubt that I was going to, to, to be part of a gold medal winning team. And then the, the week after, exactly, exactly the week after I was in the gym and I didn't feel anything, but um, about an hour after a, after I started, like I had cooled down, I started to feel really stiff. And then the next morning I just couldn't even get out of bed. And what had actually happened was I had irritated a disc. And up until that point, I had never heard a disc before. I'd had some facet joint injuries, but nothing, you know, untoward or anything that really stopped me. And um, I actually had six cortisone injections into my back and I had never had a cortisone injection either. So I think probably what happened is that a lot of my um, symptoms were a bit masked from that and my body just sort of seized up and in the lead into worlds like I just I, like I couldn't get out of bed in the morning I felt like an old lady and it was constant daily pain basically for six or seven months until I went and um, I had been I had gone back home from Adelaide to Sydney and started working with my physio team that I had worked with post London and really started to to figure out what we had to do to fix this injury. And basically what it required was me to take some forced rest, which I didn't want to do. And um, I spent the first sort of two months of my rehab basically um, with a timer on my phone and I had to check in with my body every 20 minutes to see if I was holding tension anywhere. And what I was diagnosed with was a high degree of active neural tension where my muscles just wouldn't relax. And like I didn't even realise I wasn't sleeping very well because I was like, doing this all night so um i had to teach my body to chill out and relax again and then slowly increase power and load and you know, as i mentioned earlier on everything we do is maximal full gas you've got to do this all the time and um i had to slowly teach my body that it was okay to do that and then you can relax after it so it's been a bit of a process and a bit of a you know brain brain muscle connection um tedious telling my muscles just to chill out quick one just before we get into uh the next olympics the upcoming olympics and uh your partner the whole issue mm -hmm. of that cortisone injections six cortisone injections for people who don't know about cortisone injections six cortisone injections is oh not not fun pretty intense yeah and actually um the, the six that I got, it was taking a really long time. And after the injections, the doctor actually said to me that he bent two needles trying to get it through my back muscles because they'd seized up so much. So it was, uh, I had a fair amount of spasm in my back that didn't really subside for many months. So it was not great. 
I can only imagine. I think anybody that's had a back injury, it's easily one of the worst injuries you can have, like, because it's so irritating. It's must, yeah, it's so incredibly, incredibly tough, especially when you are, your sport's on a bike and it's hunched over. And, yeah, oh. exactly. <laughs> I guess, how are you feeling heading into the, uh, this year's Olympics? Like, who's your partner? Have you raced with them much before? Because obviously Steph has retired. And I guess, mm-hmm. how, conf- how sort of confident are you heading into? You said it's a really good track at Tokyo. Yeah, the truck's actually a little bit at altitude. Um, so we're not actually in the village. We're three hours south of Tokyo in a little country town, actually. And there's there's like five velodromes on this hillside. It's really bizarre because, you know, as I said before um, earlier on, we're talking offline, you know, you're lucky to get one velodrome in a city. Like Tokyo has 50. So it's, you know, you want a velodrome, Tokyo is the place to go. Um, <laughs> so the truck's really going to be really fast. It's going to be their summer little bit of altitude um you know, so less air density so you know that's just fast conditions for cyclists so we're super excited about that um as to the team sprint um i'm actually hoping in the next sort of two weeks to get confirmation from the ioc about um relinquishing our team sprint quota spots because unfortunately we don't have somebody who's capable of riding with me in tokyo so that's been a bit sad because um the team sprint is an event that i absolutely love and i've had the most success in um, but I've had to put my own needs first and and what's best for my back and starting and doing the team sprints really hard on your body. So the Kieran affords me the opportunity to not have to do any of that really high torque work. And um, so um, I should uh, only be starting the Kieran and the sprint in Tokyo. So I'll be the sole female sprinter in Tokyo. So yeah, wow. N- not doing this team sprint, t- team sprint. I hadn't heard about that before. That, that's that, That's a big call. Yeah, it is a big call. And as I said, it's it's not confirmed just yet. So we just need to hopefully get some confirmation from the IOC soon. The, the problem is, is that there was nobody else in the show who had actually qualified. And so um, I would have to ask another team member from a different discipline to ride with me. And that's not really fair for their own Olympic chances. So we've had to, um, you know, see if we can do something where we can, uh, you know, start a, allow another team to start and be competitive and then for my own self to be able to be competitive in, in another event as well. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a bit of a nightmare, to be honest with you, because it's been really stressful. And as I said, I don't want to detract from anyone else's Olympic campaign and um, it's not, I don't feel fair, I don't feel like it's a fair thing for me to ask someone else to, to ride the team sprint with me and not contest it. And, and you know, I think that that goes against the Olympic spirit as well. You know, you, you go there to give your best and to, to, have a, to, have, to have a good race and we wouldn't be able to do that, I don't think, um, without somebody who was competitive. Yeah, that's an incredibly, I guess, tough call and especially what, it's sort of crazy that you're only like one that you're making, it's 50 days out and you're still sort of working through that and yeah. that's crazy. And I was going to say before that, you know, next time somebody goes to Japan, I'm not going to ask them if they're going snowboarding, I'm going to ask them if they're going velodrome, <laughs> going into yeah. the velodrome cycling. Truck cycling, yeah. But, geez, have you, have you given Sarah, um, Sarah, your old partner, a call and asked if she wants to come out of retirement? Steph. Steph, Steph. <laughs> um, so, you know what, actually, Steph um, – was sworn in as a police officer yesterday. So oh. I'm super excited for her. She That was her dream post-cycling and she's gone and bloody done it. That's so awesome. To be honest, she, I actually, I didn't know her name was, uh, I didn't know her name was Steph, but her <laughs> undercover name Sarah. So I was just trying yeah, to do that. Yeah, that's right. That's her undercover <laughs> name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Steph, Steph and I keep in contact a lot. Um, she's definitely, you know, one of my biggest cheerleaders on the sideline. And I know that she wants me to go out there and do us both proud in Tokyo. And it was a big call for her. You know, she was selected in the team. She was going and she had to decide what was best for her and her life. And um, I don't begrudge her at all. Um, I'm obviously sad and really disappointed that we we couldn't go there and sort of give what I believed was our potential. But um, this is life and you've got to find, you know, ways to get overcome these obstacles. So the Kieran is the event I'm going for and, um, you know, I won't be too upset if I Stephen Bradbury it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the goal? Is gold gold or what are you aiming for? The goal is always gold. Um, I think that, as I said earlier in the podcast, everyone goes to the Olympics to win and so winning is super hard. Um, so... The goal is to win. Um, the Kieran, as I mentioned, is it's not so so straightforward. It's not just, you know, one person on the track and you're going for a time. It's six people on the track. There's multiple rounds. There's 
crashes, there's, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So what I do know is I've got 15 years of experience racing. Um, I feel super confident in my ability to execute my tactical races. I know a lot of people fear having to race me because I am very skillful on my bike and very tactical. And so all I need is my form in this last 50 days to uh, increase and and those legs to go a little bit faster and I'll, I'll be competitive and I'll be hopefully one of those girls standing on top of the podium. Yeah, and we'll be uh, we'll be cheering you on. We'll be we're very uh, confident that you'll win gold. And it's funny how you talk about that Steve Bradbury moment. Is it ever? Is it quite scary on the Velodrome because you're going such high speeds? And mm-hmm. it's, is it quite a it's quite a dangerous sport, isn't it? It can be. The Kieran is the event you'll see sort of the most crashes in yeah, the most oh, high speed crashes. Um, but you know, if you're thinking about crashing or being scared, you're not you're not in the right sport. I don't think we're doing it yeah. for the right reasons. Um, it. It, it, it can be touchy at times. You'll get a you'll get an elbow or a, you know a hip to the head or whatever it might be. But you just yell at the other girl, tell her to go away, <laughs> probably with a little bit more um, not so nice words, <laughs> and then um, you know just sort of force your way through gaps and things like that. So um, I definitely don't get scared while I'm out there. My mum, however, on the flip side, <laughs> needs about five champagnes before she watches me do a Kieran's. So <laughs> we'll be popping champagnes after your gold medal win, don't you worry? And you got to love mums. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I think um, yeah, most mums would be the same, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll probably still be in lockdown here if yeah, last fucking oh. years to go by. So we're we'll popping our champagnes home alone. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. After these Olympics, what, what's the plan? Are you going for 2024? Are you going to keep going? <laughs> well, it's close now, isn't it? It's only three years now. <laughs> it is. Um, so I, what I've done is I've told my coaches I'm going to give myself six months um, after the Games. I'm going to have a good break, um, sort of step away for a little bit, finish my degree, as I mentioned, and then just sort of see um, what what life might um, sort of show up on on my doorstep after that my gut feeling is probably I will retire um this last 12 months has been really taxing mostly because of my back COVID's been COVID I think everybody has found that really difficult and challenging but we've all sort of soldiered on um but my body at 33 years old now doesn't seem to be loving the 150 kilo squat anymore (laughs) and you you need to be able to do that to go fast don't worry, my 22-year-old body doesn't love the uh, the 50-kilo squat. So, <laughs> uh, And I guess our final question, but it's one of our absolute favourites, is do you have any like life philosophies, like any quotes or words that you sort of like live your life by or day-to-day sort of stuff? I think um, for me, I used to get asked a lot when I was a bit younger, you know, who's your hero? Who's your, your role model? And I really struggled to answer that question because I was like, I don't really have a hero or a role model. My best life advice, I think, is to find the best qualities in every person and try and find a way to use that for your own good. So, you know, I never wanted to be just like enemies, but there were things about enemies that I, I did like and that I did want to, to take on just like there were things about Stephanie Morton that um you know her she was so she was the opposite to me she was so chilled out and laid back and you know she would be singing on the start line and I'd be like what are you doing <laughs> so you know that I've taken those good things about all the people that I meet and try to use them in a way that I think could be advantageous to myself and I think that yeah that could be my my best life advice to to people is to find the good in every person yeah, that's great. Great attitude to have. And we love all the life philosophy uh, questions and answers we get at the end of every episode. It's really good. But now for our final segment, my favourite segment personally, Lockie's <laughs> favourite segment I know, and hopefully our, all our listeners' favourite segments. It's the Where Do We Begin quiz. Lockie, are you excited? I am so pumped, Harper. Can't you tell oh, my voice? I'm a bit nervous about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Carly, I hope, you, I hope you're excited. I hope you do well. Uh, always good to see our guest get one over Lockie. Uh, he, Lockie's been doing pretty well, though, recently, so he's okay. a, a tough, tough ask to beat. You might, you might so, say I'm in the same form as you in 2019. That's okay. how good a form I am in. Damn, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got five questions. All five okay. questions have some loose connection to you and your career. So uh, your name is your buzzer, so just buzzing with uh, Lockie or Carly. And we'll start with question one, of course. So uh, if my insider sources are correct, you were born the 20th of January, 1988. So I'm going to read out the lyrics 
to the song that was number one in Australia on that date. And oh uh, you, you guys can buzz in whenever you want. Give me the name of the song. But once you buzz in and get it incorrect, uh, you can't buzz in again until – well, you can't buzz in at all, actually. You can't okay. buzz in at all. So, I don't think okay. I've done one. I've not got one of these questions right before Harp, so I don't see that changing today. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lockie's not too good with his uh, kind of old, old-fashioned music, I, I don't think. But anyway, we'll start with well, – we'll start with the lyrics, of course, because that's all there is. So anyway, I'll read out the lyrics. Well, I guess it would be nice if I could touch your body. I know not everybody has got a body like you. But I've got to think twice before I give my heart away. And I know all the games you play because I played them too. Oh, but I need some time off from that emotion. Time to pick my heart up off the floor. Oh, when that love comes down without devotion... Well, it takes a strong man, baby, but I'm showing you the door. Because i got to have faith. i got to have faith. Because Carly. i got to have... Carly. i, I got to have faith? Is incorrect. Lucky, oh, you keep going. No. I've got no idea, mate. Just <laughs> I, ice, ice, baby. I've got no idea. <laughs> ice, ice, baby. Ice. Very, very close, uh, but he's incorrect. Jeez, <laughs> uh, I had faith in you to, for one of you to get it, but... You didn't get it, of course. The answer is Faith by George Michael. Oh. So, surprised you didn't get that, Carly, to be honest. It's a, bit, it's a pretty famous one. But <laughs> I, anyway, was only, we, I was only zero years old then, though. <laughs> good point. Good point. Uh, but I've got faith uh, in you guys to get the next question right. Uh, we'll go to question two. So, of course, your initials KM. Another person with the initials KM is the great Kylie Minogue, of course. So Kylie Minogue was cast in which TV show Lockie. in 1986? Lockie. Oh. Lockie. Neighbours. Damn it. Absolutely correct. Oh. Well done. Well done. Well done. Yeah, oh, I probably work. wouldn't have got that myself, so that's good stuff. <laughs> uh, question three uh, is, oh, I'll, I'll just finish the question for people who want to know. As Charlene Mitchell, of course, everyone's mm-hmm. favourite character, and just quickly, their wedding episode in 1987 got 20 million British viewers, which is a very high number, almost wow. as high as this uh, video will get on the Where Do We Begin YouTube channel, which you can check out. Uh, it's very good <laughs> stuff over there at the Where Do We Begin YouTube channel. Anyway, question three. Uh, it's closest to the pin question. Uh, am I correct in saying your Wikipedia page said your stepfather's name was Ken Bates? Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Ken Bates. So there's another famous Ken Bates. Uh, who is a London businessman and is the ex-owner of football clubs Chelsea and Leeds United. So if I wanted to go from Melbourne, then visit your stepfather Ken Bates in Sydney and then go to London to visit the other Ken Bates and then go to Tokyo, how long would it take me to directly fly that trip? So directly from Melbourne to Sydney to London to Tokyo, how long would it take me to fly? To be honest, I thought the question was, was what was the likelihood of you having COVID? (laughs) After <laughs> those four plane trips, but very good Probably point. I wouldn't recommend high. doing those uh, three flights <laughs> at the moment, but closest to the pin, so both of you can have a crack at this one. All right, I'm going to say Melbourne to Sydney to London to Tokyo. I'm going to say 47. 47 hours, hours is incorrect. That's closest to the pin, so I'll throw it over to Lockie. Uh, it would be 37. 37. Gives you the point because it's 32 hours and 14 oh. minutes. Very nicely done. Very good stuff. I must be Apparently, thinking of some of my horrific stopovers <laughs> in my career. <laughs> yeah, apparently there's a flight going uh, directly from Sydney to London. Qantas is putting that on. So, no, I doubt they're putting on it right now, but 19 hours. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Anyway, we'll move to question four. So the race you won your Olympic bronze medal in, of course, the cycling women's team sprint at the 2012 Summer Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, took place at 4 p.m. local time and 1 a.m. Uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time on the 2nd of August 2012. So we started recording this at 6 p.m. Australian Eastern Time on the 3rd of oh June, gosh. 2021. I'm going to get multiple choice. How many hours since that race started? So is it A, 3,450, B, 33,450, C, 7,450, or D, 77,450? 
I'm going to say D. I think you kind of buzzed in at the same time. I'll give it to Carla. Oh. I think might have been earlier just. I should just oh, say, I didn't my, say I my treat, name. Yeah, though. I buzzed in. I buzzed yeah. in. Oh, good point. Good point. Yeah, very, very, yeah, very yeah. sports. And I was, I was going to go D. Oh, of course you were. <laughs> oh, <laughs> controversial. Yeah. It's correct. No, no, he's fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good stuff. Uh, is that, what are you, are you 3 nil up now? Yeah. That's a big up. league. That, that yeah. is a handy, handy lead. Um, uh, anyway, we'll move to question five. Carly, you've actually still got a shot because our last question is a who am I question. I'm going yeah. to go down from five points all the way down to one point. We have okay. a series of clues all okay. leading to who I am. And once you buzz in, uh, you can't buzz in again until the other person okay. gets it wrong. So okay. uh, we'll start with the five-point clue. Stanley Ann Dunham gave birth to me on August the 4th, 1961. And I confirm can confirm that Stanley Ann Dunham is a woman. Despite uh, being called Stanley, it's not like that. Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. movie where he gets pregnant. <laughs> no, I've got, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Okay, I'll move yeah. to the four-point clue. So, born and raised in Hawaii, I moved to Los Angeles after graduating high school. A very different environment from Stanley Ann's home of Wichita, Lockie. Kansas. Lockie? Did you say from Hawaii? Uh, born and raised in Hawaii. 1961. 1961. <sighs> if you guess it here, this, this is a mammoth win. This is a mammoth, nah, yeah. Nah, the, the guy, nah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Does he lose a point for that? Uh, oh, I'll, I'll give it to you. Carly, you, you have to get it here if you want to win it okay. outright, if we don't want okay. to go to a tiebreaker. Do you want to have a guess? Okay. If you get it at a no. three point, we'll go to a tiebreaker question. No, go, go to the three points. Okay, I'll go to three point clue. <laughs> yeah. I was in the national news after becoming president of the Harvard Law Review in 1991, and I've also won two Grammy Awards. It wasn't the person I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to pass. Gonna have to. Do you want to have a stab just to take it to a tiebreaker? Mm. Two Grammy Awards, 1961 from Hawaii. When did they come over from Hawaii, Harper? Uh, in 1979, I think, just after graduating high school, moved to LA. President of anyway. the Harvard Law Review in 1991. Review. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Made national news, becoming the president of the Harvard Law Review in 1991. I was going to say right, I'm going to have a guess. I don't think this is it because it involves Grammys. But I was thinking Barack Obama. Barack Obama hmm. is absolutely <laughs> correct. What? No way! What? <laughs> no, no, yes. no, I, that is very, very good. Good stuff. That is excellent. Grammy Awards. How about that? That is. Uh, he won it for, like, best spoken album, I think. Oh, wow. He had a couple of speeches and they got released okay. as albums and he won a couple of Grammys. This could that, be a Stephen that's... Bradbury moment. <laughs> <laughs> that is a Stephen Bradbury moment. What were you thinking, Lockie? Who was your answer? Uh, I just heard Hawaii and then I thought Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but then oh. 91, I thought he's not he's not 60 this year. Yeah, right. How old do you reckon he is? 40-something? But uh, anyway, I've got to get a tiebreaker question. We'll edit this out and I'll look up what it is uh, because I don't usually prepare for the tiebreaker. We've only ever had a couple. <laughs> okay, so I've got the question. The question is, it's the closest to the pin question, of course, the Olympic Games being held in Japan. Closest to the pin, what is the population of Japan as of 7.11pm on Lucky. the 3rd of June? Lucky, Lucky. I'm going to go 120 million. Wait. 120 no, million. No, that's is that too low? I'll go, oh, that is way too low. I reckon <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go 190 million. 190 million is incorrect, but it's closest mm. to the pin. I'll give Carly a shot for the win. An incredible uh, comeback. <laughs> oh gosh, I don't even. I I reckon it could be. It could be. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to say. Um, Are you going to go the very cheap answer? Harper, and say Harper, can I revert back to 120? I, I'm going to stick with 120. My initial answer. Oh, okay, okay. That could come back to bite you, but we'll, I'll let you do it because Carly hasn't said her answer yet. Thanks, Carly. Mate. 
I'm actually going to go more. I'm going to go something more like um, like 300 million. Okay, so Lockie said 120 million. Carly said 300 million for potentially the biggest comeback in Where Do We Begin history. It's incorrect, Carly. It's 126 million. Oh, 122,136. Okay. So, I realized, Lockie, yeah. Oh. <laughs> You would have gone with the 190, but geez, geez, you saved yourself a pretty embarrassing loss there, mate. <laughs> yeah, you've done well. I was just thinking more like there's, what, 8 billion people in the world. So I was like, Japan's got a lot of people. So, yeah, it's yeah, funny. Though, it's like, I think like you, Tokyo would have it like half of that, but then it's like, like yeah. Kyoto is only a million. I think Osaka is about three and a half, four. Yeah, um, yeah. it's a pretty I, small country. I had it in the quiz the other day. I think Tokyo is like 37 million or something, the whole yeah, metropolitan wow. area. It's massive. But yeah. uh, anyway, just before well we wrap done, up. Lockie. Well done, Lockie. Yeah, I'm just reading yeah. about that. Well done, Lockie. Another win for Mr. <laughs> yeah. Gibbs. Good stuff. Uh, and another defeat for our guest, which is always a shame to see. But just before we wrap up, uh, of course, the new segment that we've kind of started in the Olympics is the song of the week. So uh, mm-hmm. Carla's going to give us a song. We're going to put it on our Instagram story at WDWB pod. Are you all good with that, Carly? I'm all good with that. Is it one of Barack okay. Obama's speeches? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, could yes, be, yes. Grammy be. winning stuff. We love it. Um, yeah. But anyway, I think that wraps us up. Uh, it's been a pleasure, a blast, a thrill having you on, Carly. Uh, thanks she very didn't much get, She didn't give the, the song, Harper. Yeah, she I puts could, the song of the Instagram story. So our get so the listeners have to go there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks very much for coming on, Kai. No, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciated it. Definitely one of the funner, more funner podcasts I've ever done. So thank you. Have you done many? <laughs> it's a, yeah, I've done a few actually. Uh, I've we'll, actually done a few. So we'll take that you, as a compliment. You, you guys are on the top of the list. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That was such a good episode of Harps. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be buzzing for the next couple of hours. That was an absolute cracker. Honestly, man, I enjoyed that so, so much. I had such a good time having Carla on the show. Thank you very much again uh, to Carla for coming on. It was really, really great. I really enjoyed it. And if you guys enjoyed it as well, please consider uh, checking out our Buy Me A Coffee page, which is buymeacoffee.com forward slash where do we begin. No pressure if you don't want to, but if you do want to, check out buymeacoffee.com forward slash where do we begin, all lowercase. Couldn't have said it better myself, Harps, and I'll be honest, I tried about five times when we were recording this, and <laughs> of course, you follow us on our social, so you can find us on Facebook at Where Do We Begin, and Instagram and Twitter at WDWB Pod. Uh, we love your support, and thanks so much for tuning in for another episode. We got another, another cracker with an absolute belter of an Olympian next week. Yeah, and the one next week, we've already recorded it. It is another belter. You really can't miss it. And, of course, you can check out Carly's Song of the Week on our Instagram, which you mentioned, Lockie. Uh, but apart from that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Thank them for their support. It would be awesome if you could give us a five-star review, tell your mates, and even more awesome if you could support us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash where do we begin. Thanks for listening, guys. See ya.